How many of you would like to know on a scale of 1 to 10 how excited I am to preach this morning? With 1 being not excited and with 10 being this is awesome, I'm probably at a 2 this morning. Uh, I'm just giving you a little honesty up front. Um, uh, last week, preaching on hell actually uh, seems easier than what I'm preaching on this morning. So uh, I'm just letting you know up front, we are preaching on divorce and remarriage. Uh, we are going through the scriptures verse by verse, and that causes you to hit scriptures that you otherwise may avoid. Um, I am going to warn you in advance that I am doing everything I can do to be as biblical as I possibly can. Um, I am going to be at odds with the culture that we live in. I am going to be radically at odds with the culture that we live in. Um, and I am going to be radically at odds probably with some of the things that you think and feel. Um, so, I'm just asking that we all open our hearts, pray, pray for me as I'm preaching. Um, I am not perfect, I am not above or beyond making mistakes or errors or misinterpretations or misapplications of Scripture, so I'm saying that freely as well. Um, but, we are going to talk about it. Praise the Lord. If you can't say amen, then say Oh, me. So, okay. Uh, Mark chapter 10. We are going to start with verse 1. We're going to go through verse 12. I'm going to read this. We are going to pray in earnest. And then we are going to uh, talk about it. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to meet him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray. And as we pray this morning, we had a prayer request for Maddie. Maddie. Uh, who has COVID, it's, uh, it's your all's family granddaughter, and we're going to be praying for her as well, uh, for her healing. Father, we thank you this morning um, for your word. We thank you that it is alive and powerful. We thank you that it is a sword that cuts away the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It separates them out. Lord, you said that we are laid naked before you. There is nothing hidden from your sight, and your word is meant to help us to cut away things that don't belong, but Lord, to provide healing into the wounds that have happened. So Lord, I pray that your word would do that. Cut away and heal this morning. Lord, we lift up Maddie before you as well as a church, and we pray for her healing. We pray that she would be physically healed of COVID, lupus, 
than to any other thing that is going on. Lord, we give you glory and thanks for that this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, so let's, let's dive in to where we are. So last week, uh, we, we finished up talking about hell. Um, that sermon bothered me all afternoon. Uh, it, it, in a good way, I think, just the sober reality of what Scripture says about what Jesus says, the wrath of God and hell and how at odds that is with some of our current cultural um, understandings. And then immediately we get into Mark uh, 10 and we go right into divorce and remarriage. So let's look exactly what happens here. And we're still thinking of the geography where Jesus is working his way uh, through Capernaum um, He's in the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan. He's actually, and this is super important, he's in the same region that the Tetrarch Herod was at. This is the same Herod that in Mark chapter 6 had John the Baptist beheaded. Why did he have John the Baptist beheaded? Anybody remember? Because John the Baptist told him in his royal court, you're living in adultery because of Herodias, your wife, because he took his brother's wife. So that earned him prison and beheading. So we're in the same region, and why is that relevant? Look at verse 2. Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Not that we're thinking of John the Baptist who got beheaded for the way he answered this question. Not that that's crossed our mind at all. But what do you say, Jesus? They're looking for a way to trap him one way or the other, and they're very good at this. They've been dogging him all throughout. They keep seeking this kind of verbal trap that they can put Jesus in, and so far he's avoided all of them, and he avoids this one as well. But it's one of these moments where you can see how Jesus is heaping up coals of resentment on behalf of the Pharisees, as we are heading towards the cross. These are the moments that are causing them to just quiver with rage. But we we think, because of the region that it's in, that part of their trap is, hey, maybe Herod will get wind of his answer, whatever it is, and we can get rid of Jesus that way. But they're also exemplifying something that was very, very, very common in their day, and that was the debate on divorce and remarriage. You don't think we're the only culture that's had this debate. This has been going on for a long time. The understanding of what it means to be a husband and a wife and the understanding of what it means and the seriousness of what divorce is. So that baked into their question is Herod over here and then the debate over divorce and remarriage based off of the law. So let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 24. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4. And this this portion of Scripture is what was debated hotly. Let's read these verses. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, 
and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And as she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, the first husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, I'm not going to try to explain everything here, but the debate is actually in verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. So what they are, uh, what the debate is, is over this word indecency, which has a sexual connotation, and it is typically understood by one group of Jewish rabbis to mean sexual immorality. It is also understood by another set of Jewish rabbis to mean whatever the heck you want it to mean, which sounds very familiar to me. So here's what was happening. Now, if you guys want to write this down and sound smart and impress people at dinner parties, there was a school of rabbinic thought and tradition out of the Mishnah, which is the Jewish commentary on the law. They did what we do. What's this verse mean? How do we apply it? They did exactly what we do, and they've got extensive writing. It's very, very helpful, actually, to read through some portions of the Mishnah to get an idea of the world Jesus was preaching in. Well, one of the schools of thought was a guy named Hillel, and it's H-I-L-L-E-L, and in his mind, he was what we would call the more liberal scholar, and he believed that the word indecency meant, if she can't cook, find you a new one. Literally, if her hair is weird, get rid of her. I mean, if you want. It's actually comical when you read some of the stuff that goes on. Even to the point, now this, this actually cuts deep in the shallowness that we all know is true to this day. She's not pretty anymore. She doesn't look good. Okay, she's no, longer, she's no longer finding favor in your eyes. You can see how they can use that verse, right? No longer finding favor. So you found an indecency. Write her a certificate of divorce. Now, fast forward into the first century, which is where the Pharisees are at. Oh, wait, i got to tell you the other guy. Hang on. Shammai, S-H-A-M-M-I-A, or A-I, Shammai, he was representative of the, uh, the conservative group, and his mindset and his school of thought was indecency means sexual immorality, so all this, all this really just pertains to sexual immorality, not does her hair look good? Does she have morning breath? Do you not like her outfits? Literally, that was one of the things. If she was exposing her shoulder too much in a marketplace, then that could be indecent. Like, they had all kinds of stuff set up to allow for frivolous, what we would call today 
no-fault divorce. Are you familiar with that phrase? In our legal system, it's called a no-fault divorce or irreconcilable differences. We don't like each other anymore. We can't get along. He gained 50 pounds. She gained 50 pounds. She's not doing it for me anymore. He's not the man he used to be. He's mean. He doesn't pay attention to me. He doesn't take the spiritual head of the home. She's not sleeping with me enough. Just insert whatever we insert there into the modern world, and that would be a no-fault divorce. Your needs aren't getting met. Honey, you've got to take care of yourself. I don't know if you've ever noticed on social media when people get a divorce, how quickly people come to their aid. Right? Oh, honey, you got to do you. you got to take care of you. That is the mindset of our culture. But it's not just the mindset of our culture. It's the mindset of thousands of years of humanity. This isn't just limited to us. We've got new ways to express it, but this is, this is, not, this is not new. There's going to be one sermon where I'm going to say the sinfulness of humanity is ubiquitous over time. It is the same. It is, it is universal. It is, it is worse sinful fallen human beings, and nothing demonstrates it more, maybe, than, than marriage. Because nothing can get at your soul like marriage. Nothing can bless you like marriage in this earthly life, and nothing can irritate you and cause pain like a bad marriage can. It reveals things about who we are. It is, should be, a sanctifying experience. For, for many, we're at the 50% mark statistically. For almost most, it is a destructive and destroying thing that happens in people's lives. I was going to give you a bunch of statistics. I'm not, but suffice to say, less people are getting married than ever before to avoid everything I'm talking about. We might come back to that. So, Hillel, he says, indecency means, in essence, whatever you want it to mean. Uh, Shammai says, nope, this is talking about sexual immorality. Which one of these two schools of thought do you think were most popular in the first century? Hillel. Hillel all day. Who this guy over here telling us that we have to have these real specific things to have a divorce. Forget that nonsense. I need an upgrade on my marriage. I'm about to get a divorce body. Everybody knows what that is, right? The premeditated idea of getting in shape in such a way that you can attract a new mate. If you're thinking that way, you're already in trouble. Okay. That's the debate. Jesus, in his answer, knows what the debate is. It's, math, or it's Deuteronomy 24. It's the word indecency. It's all these little subsets and answers that have cut. There's, there's a lengthy tradition in this debate. He knows all the nuances of that debate. And Jesus says, in answer to their question, what did Moses tell you to do? And he knows what they're going to do. They're going to quote Deuteronomy 24, which is what happens. 
uh, in verse 4. They said Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. We got permission. We got permission, Jesus. Moses said we could do it. Jesus knew this is what they were going to do. And he says something radical. I know what Moses said. What else did Moses say? Now that's not in the text. But that is in essence what Jesus is about to do. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Let's talk about that just briefly. What Jesus is saying is, sinfulness is in existence in the hearts of humanity and divorce is going to happen. So in the government of Israel, the theocracy that Israel was, God was giving, giving them good governance to deal with that sinfulness, but it was not a stamp of approval. It was actually a highlight that said, your hearts are hard, but I will allow for divorce in this indecency clause, which had something to do with sexual immorality, and they had turned it because of sinfulness into, hey, bad breath in the morning. She's not meeting my needs. He's not who I thought he was. And they had turned it into something else. So Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, and now he quotes Genesis 1.27, God made them male and female. He goes all the way back to the first chapter of Genesis and stakes his claim on the foundation of marriage. And the foundation of marriage is that God made them male and female. Now this didn't used to be a point in any message at what I'm about to say. But let me just say out loud again, God made them male and female. There hasn't been a culture that this had to be explained and expounded upon. But let me just say it again. He made them male and female. Cultures that lose their grip on reality start introducing new fairy tale made up genders. There aren't any made up genders, there are male and there are female. It is, it is a fairy tale. It is an air castle sitting on a cloud of nothingness to, to try to introduce a whole new concept that's based on what I feel inside. Lord, help us all if we try to establish reality based on what people feel inside. Especially before you've had coffee. Or before you've had Whatever else you need in the morning. You, this, it's, it's insanity. Somebody just, we just got to say it out loud. It is insanity. There's, there's two. There's male and there's female. And people say all the time there's nothing in the New Testament about Jesus addressing homosexuality. He's addressing it here. It is understood. It is universal. There is no male and male, and there is no female and female allowed. Jesus is giving us the prescription and the understanding of what marriage is. It is a man and it is a woman. Now, 20 years ago, no preacher would have stopped and did what I just did. Because we understood it. 
But when, when the fabric of culture is being ripped to shreds, people don't know what they're standing on or why. We took for granted a Christian nation for a long time. The foundation of a Christian nation is the understanding that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And in the beginning God made them male and female. That's all I'm going to say on that. So, Jesus goes on to say, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So now Jesus quoted Genesis 2.24. So he's telling us, God made a male and female in the beginning, and he made them to be for each other, and when they come together, they become one flesh. And then he concludes this by saying, What therefore God has joined together let not man separate. Let's just take a second here and say this. Marriage is awesome. Now, I just said a little bit ago that it's difficult and hard. It's got some issues. It creates issues for people. But God said, he who finds a wife, what? Ladies, you should know the rest of that. He, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. You can read the Song of Solomon if you're married. I don't, probably shouldn't even read it if you're not. No, I'm just kidding. They uh, didn't allow Jewish boys to read it, just so you know. You had, to, you had to be married to read the Song of Solomon. Now every guy in here is like, I am reading the Song of Solomon this afternoon. So uh, you can read the idea of the blessing and the joy, and the privilege, and the goodness of marriage, it is interwoven throughout the fabric of the Bible that marriage is good, it is blessed. It's the first institution that God orchestrated, and Jesus is looking back to that in answer to the Pharisees' question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He is answering by saying, what God has put together, man should not separate. That's his answer. His answer is, no. They shouldn't be separated. God's put them together. They've become one flesh. To rip apart one flesh means tearing is going to happen. In every divorce, there is a tearing, even if one of the partners is awful. There is a tearing because when you become one, the only way to split up is to split, but it's never clean. The, the split is never clean. It is always a tearing. I want you to see uh, Ephesians 5. I, I just Before we move on, I want us to look at the beauty and the goodness of marriage. It's Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul is quoting the same verse that Jesus did. But then he gives us a glimpse into what marriage means. This mystery of the two becoming one is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the mystery of marriage is deep, it is profound, but the depth and the profundity 
The, the reason it's so profound is because it's actually pointing at something greater than the marriage. And that is Christ and His relationship to the church. So marriage, the meaning of marriage, the purpose of marriage, is to show the world how God has come through His Son, Jesus Christ, and created a group of people called the church that is His bride, and He has embraced them, forgiven them of their sin, brought them into Himself, and now we are a part of Him. And so marriage is a demonstration of that fact. It is, it's like a living metaphor pointing to what God has done. It's awesome. Marriage is meant to be a blessing. It's meant to be the stability of a culture, of a nation, of a community. It's, it's meant to be a demonstration of who Christ is to the church. God's joined you together. This is a big deal. It's weighty. It's glorious. It's good. Let's go back to Mark. Not surprisingly, verse 10 happens. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. How many times has this happened? As we, as we go through the book of Mark, that's right, Brandon, every time. Uh, Jesus, uh, would you care to clarify what you have said to the people? Because I'm struggling to understand what you're actually saying. He doesn't make it any easier. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Jesus has just completely shut the door on the school of Hillel. He is saying just straight up, you guys are wrong. He is more closely aligned with the school of Shammai. They would, everybody here would have recognized that. Just like today, if you hear people talk, I'll use this debate again, uh, people, different age groups, and argue over Michael Jordan or LeBron James, all right? Michael Jordan, LeBron James, who's the greatest? I, I've, we already know who it is. Uh, but, but when I hear people talk, if they're talking about basketball and that subject's starting to come up, I can tell which way they're leaning, right? You can figure out where somebody's at. Now, there's going to be some nuances in their argument, perhaps. And Jesus, when he said what he said, they know which side of the debate he's on. He's on the conservative end of the debate, but it's actually way deeper because this is the Son of God who wrote the Old Testament in their presence telling them the way that it's supposed to be. This is huge. And the disciples, when they get him inside, they, they know, okay, we, we know, we've heard him say this before, probably. He said it more than once. But this question and this debate type of scenario with the Pharisees, they want some more detail. And he says, whoever divorces his wife 
marries another, commits adultery against her. This is actually a big deal because the Jewish people never, ever, 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 ever said that adultery was committed against the woman. If a married man slept with a married woman to another married woman, what they would say is, is that the married man that slept with the, the other wife had committed adultery against the husband. Not with the husband, against him. He had committed adultery with that man's wife, and therefore it was against him. In other words, the woman was almost down a rung. Jesus does something unique, and he says, because this would have been unique to their ears, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. So he says the woman has the dignity that a man has, and therefore the sin against her is the same. You've committed adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So whoever does the divorcing and the remarrying, you have committed adultery. And then Mark just moves on. He's talking about children next. But for us, when you read 11 and 12, I know what that effect is on everybody in the room. Oh. Because some of you are divorced. Some of you are divorced and remarried. Some of you know people divorced and remarried. And you have a thousand scenarios going through your mind. What do, we, what do we do with this? What about this? What about this? You are not the only people who have had those questions. And so I want to take the rest of the sermon and do the best that I can to talk about what we will call exceptions to the rule. But let me make it clear. Marriage is not something that you should be seeking exceptions on. We should not be in the position of trying to find our way out of an uncomfortable marriage or a painful marriage. I will clarify that. But sometimes marriages are bad. But it doesn't mean you should get divorced. Because what God has put together let no man separate. But there are times where a divorce is warranted. So let me say this. We want to apply the rule broadly. And the rule is, you should not get divorced. We want to apply the exceptions carefully. Now the exceptions I'm about to give, I already know, are subject to interpretation and they are subject to abuse. Because if you want out of a marriage, you will start digging like you've never dug before in the Scripture to find a reason, which in and of itself should be a red flag. I'm just going to trying to be as honest as I can. But there are reasons. There are reasons for divorce that are biblical. And we do not want anybody to feel that are in those type of scenarios that there isn't 
some sort of reprieve through the grace of God to deal with certain situations. So let's, let's look at some of those. I think that broadly speaking, there are three exception clauses in Scripture that allow for divorce and remarriage. Because that's really a big part of the issue. Those are adultery, abandonment, and abuse. So I want to go through biblically where I'm getting that information. And the first place I want us to go is dealing with adultery, number one. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is having a similar conversation in Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. So we know Jesus spoke this and preached this in multiple places and in multiple times. We're going to look at verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus is speaking right into that Deuteronomy 24 debate. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What is the exception? It's adultery. Let's look at, uh, stay in the book of Matthew and go to chapter 19. I'm going to start with verse 8. It's going to, it, this is the same setting that we have in Mark chapter 10. But you'll notice that Matthew has broadened out a little more of what Jesus said, where Mark was just straight to the point. Matthew adds the same exception that we saw in chapter 5. Verse 8 says, And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Now look just out of curiosity so you can see verse 10. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry these, this is spoken from a group of people that grew up in a culture where Halal had won the day, so everybody, as accepted doctrine, understood that you can, you don't like her, things aren't going well, write her a certificate of divorce, get you a new one. Well, of course everybody likes that idea better. And their answer is, uh... It'd be better not to get married. Jesus goes on to say, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those, only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. I think he's talking about the specific and special gift of celibacy um, or singleness uh, that God does absolutely have, and there is nothing lesser than about someone who is single and serving in the kingdom of God. But Jesus does say not everybody can receive that saying. But the default setting 
for society and for the church is marriage. But it doesn't mean it is every single time. So we probably do a bad job with singles uh, in figuring out ways that they would know that biblically that God's grace is with them uh, for being single. So that's a, that is another topic. But Jesus, again, in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19, he says that except in the case of sexual immorality. This has been understood by lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people to mean that if there has been adultery in a marriage, it frees the partner for divorce and remarriage without the condemnation of marrying somebody and committing adultery. In other words, I divorced her because we couldn't get along. What I really wanted was an upgrade on my wife, or what I really wanted was an upgrade on my husband. When we think that way and act that way, we are fulfilling the verse in the negative and committing adultery in that marriage. That is what the scripture says. So our culture of no-fault divorce and irreconcilable differences and he's not meeting my needs and she's changed, she's not the same, all of that stuff, of course she changed. So did you. Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, which I strongly recommend every single one of you buy and read, says that we're married to six different people in our lifetime with the same spouse. You and your spouse are changing. Our taste buds change. Our personalities change. Our bodies change. Everything changes. Our desires, our wants. We may have trauma that alters things. There's all kinds of stuff that happens, which is why it is so important to have a foundation that says, what God has put together, let not man separate. You've you've got to have that as the foundation. However, we can't ignore this exception that's in here in Scripture either. If there is adultery, Jesus is saying, I believe that these Scriptures are saying that except in this case of adultery, you are free to divorce. Because you've been sinned against in a way that God says that covenant of marriage has been broken and you are biblically free to divorce and to remarry. So adultery is one exception. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So I need to preach about 12 sermons inside of these verses. There's a lot here. There are books, lots of books, on what I'm about to read. I mean lots of them. There's theological papers, there's position papers. As as I've studied this and looked at things, there are people that I love and respect that I very much disagree with uh, in some of their interpretation. I've run across people who say, You know, John Piper is one of my favorites, and his position is there is no exceptions whatsoever. Period. There's there's none. And then there are people who are way more like Hillel that say, well, you know, God understands. God knows my heart. That sounds more comfortable, right? There's, There's all kinds of stuff all over the spectrum. 
So we're diving into a passage that is really, husbands and wives, go home and read 1 Corinthians 7 together. This is a good passage for you to, to read together, to discuss and talk about. But 1 Corinthians 7 verse 8, Paul is giving out instructions in regard to marriage because Corinth had a horrible issue with perversion and everything else in that city. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they can't exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Does that, do I need to explain what that means? It means fornication is wrong. We're not supposed to be having sex outside of marriage. One of the reasons to get married, wait for it, is to have sex. You heard it here in church, okay? That, and, and the truth of the matter is, the truth of the matter is, no matter what the world is doing dangling out there in front of you through pornography or through things that show women a certain way or men a certain way, enticing certain elements of our minds that are connected to sin, uh, no matter what they're dangling out in front of you, nobody living in those lifestyles is satisfied and fulfilled. Married people have, according to psychologists and other studies, have the most fulfilled sexual lives of any other group on the planet. The world would not have you think that that's true, and they act like it's not true, and all the jokes and everything about it. The truth of the matter is that sex is way more than the physical act. It is connected directly to the commitment and the covenant and the security of that person. And if you don't have that, you've got nothing but a biological moment. And it fades with the moment. So, that's another sermon. But he says it's better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. Now this, this little parenthesis always used to frustrate me like, wait a second, what do you mean? I thought this was all the Word of God. Well, it is the Word of God. He is referencing the fact that we have teaching from Jesus specifically on marriage. We've just read it. And so Paul is going to echo the teaching of Jesus on marriage. And verse, the rest of verse 10, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. That's an echo of what Jesus said in Mark and in Matthew, also in Luke. To the rest, verse 12, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Wait a second. That's, all he means is, is I am expanding as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ into this issue of marriage. We have Jesus' teaching on marriage, and now I am giving you further instruction on marriage. That if a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So we have a Christian and a non-Christian. And he's saying that if the unbelieving spouse says, I love you and want to be married, I just don't believe in Jesus and I'm not going to church. Paul says, you shouldn't divorce that person. He explains it further. Verse 14, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, 
but as it is, they are holy. That is a very difficult verse. I would just simply say what I think it means is that in the covenant community of grace, that there is a sanctifying element where the believing spouse has an effect on the child uh, and raises them a certain way. But there's, I'm not going to try to unpack verse 14. It is complex, okay? As you read it, all your face is wrinkled up, right? You're like, what in the world is that? It is not saying that if I'm a Christian and I'm married to an unsaved person, me being a Christian will save them. That is not what it's saying, okay? But anyway, verse 15 is really, really key. But if the unbelieving partner separates, and separates means divorces. Do you know how easy it was to get a divorce in the first century? Leave the house and don't come back. You got to go to the courthouse here. You just leave the house, write a certificate of divorce, and you're good. In the Roman culture, the woman and the man, either one could leave. In the Greek culture, they either one. And it was awful because the woman is abandoned frequently, and it was much diff- more difficult for her than it was for him. But if the unbelieving partner separates and says, I am not putting up with these Christians and the stuff you believe and eating the body and drinking the blood and and you're dunking people underwater and you guys are lifting your hands and worshiping and ah, it's just weird. If that unbelieving partner leaves, separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister, the Christian partner, is not enslaved or in bondage. God has called you to peace. So the first exception is adultery. The second exception is what I call abandonment, which is what I believe verse 15 is describing. An unbelieving partner says, I'm out of here. Now, in this exception, does it mean you can get remarried? I believe that it does mean that. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. You're not in bondage to that unbelieving spouse and that unbelieving spouse in the marriage. There are people who would disagree I'm just going to tell you what I believe that that I do believe the verse allows for the Christian to remarry. I'm not going to be dogmatic about that. I'm just going to say I believe that's what the scripture is teaching. There's something else in here. And Wayne Grudem, how many of you how many have heard of Wayne Grudem? Uh, theologians, excellent, excellent, excellent. Uh, wrote a great book with John Piper called. Uh, Biblical manhood and womanhood is fantastic. He recently changed his position, and it was because of this verse, because he did not believe abandonment was a cause for or to allow uh, for remarriage. And he changed it, and there's a paper, and I can email it to anybody that wants, and he really hones in on the phrase, in such cases. Because that is a plural meaning there are more cases out there. 
other than this one that Paul is mentioning. Now that opens a big giant door though, doesn't it? Because what the sinful heart of man wants to do is say, oh, I've got one of those cases. My marriage is clearly one of those cases. He's playing video games to three in the morning and I don't like the way he looks because he gained a bunch of weight and he's kind of mean to me and he's not the same guy he used to be. So I'm, I'm in there. No, you're not. Not even close. That's not a reason to get divorced. He says mean things to me. He's mentally abusing me. Is he? I don't know. He might be. I'll get to that. I'll jump ahead. So, what I believe this verse is saying is that in the case of an unbeliever separating and leaving the believer, the believer is free to remarry. Abuse is the third. Now, don't panic with what I'm about to say. There are no scriptures that mention abuse. There, there aren't any in terms of connecting that to marriage. Now, I'm going to ask you to be brave by a show of hands because I'll raise mine first. How many of you have always believed that if there is harmful abuse or if somebody's life is in jeopardy, that a divorce is warranted? So, so why do we think that? Where is that coming from? I think it's coming from the principle that preserving life is to be preferred over keeping the general rule. Let me, let me give you an example. In Matthew chapter 12, uh, in fact, let's all go there so you can see the example. Matthew chapter 12, uh, verses, starting with verse 3. This is when Jesus was questioned on the Sabbath. What's the rule on the Sabbath? Not allowed to work. Did they yell at Jesus for healing people on the Sabbath? For performing a work? What principle was at play there that Jesus said, said, it's more important that this man be healed. I'm here. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. But here, he answers the Pharisees on, on that issue, and he says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest. What's the principle at play? They were starving, they were on the run, they were in war. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Because sinful man enters I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. The principle at play here and in other places in the ministry of Jesus is life is, in preserving it, is to be preferred over the general rule that divorce should not happen. The general rule is you should not get divorced. But what we're talking about now is exceptions. I think that abuse is an exception in as much as that abuse is life-threatening to the wife or the husband 
That's very, that's rare, but it does exist. Or the children. That opens up lots of cans of worms. I know it does. Well, he's mentally abusive. What do we do with mentally abusive? We would have to define it. We would have to be specific. I do not think it should be flippant. I do not think it should be, well, every time I see this person, they're crying, so that marriage is awful. There's no way God wants them living in that. I think that is a dangerous way to start reasoning. I think we've got to reason from the Scripture into the situation rather than the situation into the Scripture. I also think that this highlights why the local church is so important. Because elders and church family should be a part of the process for anybody in that type of situation. Counseling and reconciliation efforts should be attempted as hard as they possibly can be attempted. We give up, I believe, way too easily because we live in a culture that makes it very easy. What I'm asking us to do is to elevate the way that we think into a scriptural matrix that says, what does God say? God says, what I've joined, let no man separate. I just heard a testimony of a, of a woman that, because uh, I've listened to 378 sermons on uh, divorce and remarriage um, at this point, uh, just trying to get ready for this. Um, and this lady came up, and this was John Piper's church, which I've already said I disagree with his position. Uh, but he had, uh, this woman had come up to him and ta- talked about how awful her marriage was. It was awful. And he, he begged her, do, just don't do it. Just don't get divorced. Just don't do it. Stick it out. There wasn't abuse. There was no abuse. It was just he was detached. No, no needs were being met. Didn't care. He was, he was oblivious. There's a lot of guys in that category. 20 years later, she comes up to him and says, thank you. My husband is right now at home building an extra room onto the house for my mother who was sick, and we're going to take care of her. My husband has changed as a man. He is not who he was. And the grace of God has altered his life, and our marriage is sweet. You don't know what you're giving up on. When, when God says that he's making us one flesh, it's not an overnight process. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but there is probably not a married couple in here who has not cried over the treatment that your spouse gave you. I will, I will just go ahead and tell you, I have had moments with Jennifer where I left and cried. Not because my wife is mean and awful, you all know her. I think we have a good marriage. But there isn't a marriage among us that doesn't have moments. And what happens is, is in those moments, those thoughts start creeping in. Man, there's a lot of men out there that would be lucky to have me as a wife. Or there's a lot of ladies out there that would love to be married to me. You can almost hear the ridiculousness of it, right? But that's what happens. It slips in these little thoughts, these they are fantasy air castles. You got to say no to them. My, my belief is, is even though there are exceptions, and, and this final exception on abuse, I believe, is on the principle. 
even though there are uh, exceptions, I think that that when marriages are difficult, the response to that should be prayer, seeking the Lord, going out of your way to be the husband or wife you are supposed to be to that spouse and trusting that God will work. I know that is not easy. I know I am not tossing out rainbows this morning. Because if you're in a marriage that's struggling and it feels brittle and it's falling apart, you, you halfway want to hear that there's an exit door. A biblical exit. So I can get out of this mess. I would say reach out to the church. Reach out to friends in the church. Get a, be a part of Woven. Be a part of Banded. Come talk to one of the elders of the church. Let's minister and talk and not create some gossip session, but at the same time, the love and the care and the compassion that we need from one another should be found in a local body of believers. And this, this, that element right there is missing sorely too often. We want to hide that we're having thoughts of divorce. We want to hide that. You, you should get that out in the open. Fungus and gross things grow in the dark because it's not exposed to the light. Get it out in the light so it can dry up and die. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 7. I'm going to end here. just want to remind everybody, sin is always looking for a way out. When it comes... To obedience, sin wants out. When it comes to pleasure, sin wants in. And the rationalizations that we do are kind of based off of those two things when it comes to sin. If you're looking for a way out, by golly, you'll figure out a way to make these exceptions work for you. If you're looking for a way in, you'll pretend you've never heard anything that the Scripture has to say. It's weird. The heart is deceitfully wicked. That's what... That's what Scripture says. I told you to go back to 1 Corinthians, right? Look at verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. I want to end on this as what I believe is the guiding principle. Something There's so much stuff I'm not saying. There's stuff in Romans 7. There's stuff all over the place. Death obviously releases somebody to be remarried. Um, there, there's, this topic is very, very broad. But I think that verse 11 is giving me and you the guiding principle that we should live by. Reconciliation should be the goal if there is a divorce or if there is even separation. I would even advocate in certain situations for husbands and wives to what we call in our culture a legal separation, to chill out for a while, to seek counseling, come together supervised by counselors or the church, and then learn how to reconcile. I have known several couples who have been able to to get that figured out through that process. That, can, that would be 
that's kind of like the final step kind of process. But we should be doing everything we can to reconcile with one another. It's not a pretending that there aren't grievances. It's not a pretending that husbands can be jerks and wives can be jerks. It's not pretending that you don't have real complaints against your spouse. You very well may have them. In fact, I know you do. There are legitimate problems. You, you cannot have two sinful human beings living together and not have something friction-wise. What I'm saying is, what I believe Scripture is saying is, is that it should be accepted as par for the course. And what I'm supposed to do as a husband is husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And what the wife is supposed to be doing is see that the wife respects her husband and submits to him as unto the Lord. That is what's supposed to be happening inside of our marriages. We are supposed to strive to be obedient to that and to pray for our spouse. You're driving away after you had a fight before work. Aren't those the best? You, you leave, you go to work irritated. She's going to work or staying home irritated. That's fun, right? Then you're sitting there working and that's nagging you in the back of your mind and you're wondering who's going to text who first to apologize or whatever. And then you, you get mad that you're the one that had to do it. But, right? I, I get all of that. I am married 22 years. I've lived with the same woman for 22 years and I love her. And she sometimes... Noise me. From in, yesterday we fought over something so stupid, don't remember what it was. But I remember the feeling of irritation and annoyance. But I've also learned that the blessing of being married and the blessing of a wife that loves God is more valuable than gold. And you fight for it. You Fight for your marriages. Quit giving up like this stupid, ridiculous culture we live in that wants to change spouses like tennis shoes. Stop it. Look for reasons to figure it out. And I know some of you are like, Steve, you don't have any idea. And that's probably true. But God does, and He can heal and fix everything. I'm going to end with a story. If you have questions, come see me. If you need clarifications, come see me. I, this is as deep as I'm going to go. I know we went over a lot. I felt like we needed to. But I want to tell you a story, and I share this a lot in marriage counseling. A long time ago, somebody came to my house. Nobody, None of you know who this is. Um, came to my house middle of the night, crying, wouldn't tell me why, couldn't figure out what was going on. I was very, I was like 24 years old, we had just started the church. And he tells me something's going on with him and his wife. Well, since it's 11 o'clock at night and this is not normal, um, trying to figure it out, Jennifer gets a phone call from his wife, and then he tells me. The things he had been doing, the things he had done, 
were awful, sinful. Other women, I'll just leave it at that, was awful though. If you had found out about it, there's, there's not a woman in here that would have divorced the guy on the spot. I mean, it was not good. He's weeping under the conviction of the Holy Spirit because he got saved and things were changing in his life and as they were changing and God's grace was at work in his life, what began to bother him was is that she has no idea. And now he's convicted and God is at work. I drive over with them in the middle of the night. I don't know, it was like one in the morning at this point. I go out to their house. She doesn't know yet. He wants me to come. He tells her what he's done. It was awful to sit there and listen to it. I just remember feeling helpless. You know, what do you say? I'm 24. This is, Bible college doesn't have this scenario in one of the tests. Um, I didn't, I didn't, I don't know what to do. I'm just, I'm just sitting there and I'm praying. I don't know what else to do. She explodes in what can only be defined as rage mixed with like a wounded animal. It was, I mean, to see that level of pain and disbelief and I stayed there until four in the morning, um, trying to talk to them and pray. I didn't know what, I'd, I mean, as I drove away to drive home, I remember thinking, this is, this is a divorce. This is, there's, no way this, there's no way this marriage survives. We get a call the next morning. I was like, okay, here it is. Want me to come back out. I'm not saying this is going to happen to everybody, okay? Please don't set yourself up that this is what's supposed to happen. This was a miraculous, sovereign gift of God. She went to bed hating him. And rightfully so. In the middle of the night, morning, really, as she was asleep, she couldn't look at him. She couldn't. He wanted to hug her. He wanted. He was trying to say sorry. None of that. In the middle of the night, God gave her a dream. I don't even know what the dream was, but this was just a supernatural thing that happened. She woke up the next morning, and I am not kidding. She said he smells different. And he looks different, and she forgave him completely. And they wound up having, to this day, one of the most blessed marriages I have ever known. I'm sharing that as a story of hope. That just because one of these exceptions happens, doesn't mean that you must get divorced. It means that you can get divorced. And there will be no condemnation if you do. Jesus mentioned you wouldn't have condemned the guiltless. You would be guiltless. You'll not be condemned. Our church won't do it. If somebody's condemning you, let me know. But I also want to say God can redeem anything. And that is who we are serving. 
And that is who watches over our marriages and says, I know it's hard, and I know he's stupid, and I know she's annoying, but I am making you one flesh more and more every day, and you are exemplifying the glory of God in Christ Jesus. This is mystery is profound, but I speak concerning Christ and the church, and, and I am building something in you and your family that will impact people and you don't even know that it's happening. Marriage is so important. should never be viewed as anything other than the first thing God put into effect. Let's all stand up. I want everybody to bow your head with me. There are marriages that are in trouble this very morning. Um, there are marriages that are doing just fine. There's some of you in here that say, yep, we have fought the good fight. And sometimes we fought with each other. I want to pray for marriages this morning. So if your spouse is with you, just grab their hand. If they're not, we're going to pray for you anyway. And if you're single, pray over these married couples. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, I know this was a lot. And I pray you would take it and use it for your glory. You would clarify things that I may have left gray or fuzzy around the edges. Lord, we need you and we need your grace. Marriages are under attack. The culture that used to accept marriage as the pinnacle of something blessed and good in, a, in society, it's, that's seemingly gone. So Lord, we are not looking to society. We are not looking to culture. We're not looking to their definitions. We are looking to your word as the ultimate and final source, source and reason for us to live and how to live. Lord, I'm praying that you would give supernatural grace and strength in every marriage that's here, that you would strengthen what has been weakened, that you would heal what has been wounded, that husbands who are not leading well or jerks or mean-spirited, God, that you would convict them. Wives that aren't doing what they need to be doing as a wife or have issues that are affecting the marriage, whatever they are on their end, God, I pray that you would reveal that and convict their hearts. I pray there would be reconciliation. Lord, where somebody may be teetering on the brink of divorce, I pray that they would teeter back into your arms as one flesh. And for marriages, Lord, that are in these exception areas and, and the questions that are coming. God, I pray for your wisdom in those marriages or those who have already been divorced and hearing this is a difficult sermon to hear. Lord, I pray that they would know your grace is sufficient and covers them. Wherever we've sinned, Lord, you forgive us of that sin as we confess it to you and trust in you. Lord, I pray we would go out this week strengthened and encouraged to fight the good fight of faith at home, at work, and most especially in our marriage. Lord, we thank you for this in the name of Jesus.
And all God's people said, Amen. Church, I love you very much. You are officially dismissed.